I am very grateful once again for the Lord's prophetic voice. Uh, he just gave me some language and some peace in my heart about what I'm going to be sharing today. So I want to share a couple things with you that came out of the, the prayer room. There's much bigger prophetic implications for some of these things, but there is immediate application for this morning and what we're about to hear. One thing was um, Brenda saw uh, Jabez sitting in his tent. You know, asking the Lord, expand my tent. But what she saw was him ruling, judging righteously. And the beauty and the holiness and basically the, the approval and pleasure of God of somebody that judges rightly. Judges rightly. We were actually talking about that last week. About judging rightly a little bit. So that's one thing that came out. Judging rightly. In the beauty of holiness. Two, um, she saw a, a piece of paper, and I think the immediate implication was the piece of paper, I had it in my hand, and I folded it. And when I folded it and then unfolded it, this blank, flat piece of paper became a lotus flower. And lotus kind of, you know, stands for purity, but lotus flowers grow out of the mud. So purity out of muddy waters. And I feel that's what I feel called to bring today is some some clarity around this Israel-Palestine conflict. I need to talk about it. We have to talk about it. Um, I had a two-dimensional object, and this is often what happens, is the media, the world, the devil wants us to think in black or white, two dimensions. But as I folded this up, this three-dimensional flower came out, and I feel like I'm supposed to give some dimension, right, to, to this black and white uh, issue that's going on that some people want to paint it as black and white. And trust me, it is not black or white. It's not. Um, so purity and out of muddy waters, out of confusion, out of, man, this is not clear. The Lord wants us all to have pure hearts in our judgment about this situation, okay? So that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to jump into today. So I hope at the end of this, um, we can all be friends. Uh, we, may, we, we may agree to disagree about some things, but I, I just I want to challenge everybody, me included, um, in, in some of these things. So some of the questions we need to ask are this. Is the political nation of Israel today, the political nation of Israel, is it God's doing or not? We're not going to actually talk about that today. Should we, here's another question, should we as the church of God support this nation more than any other nation on earth? We should ask that question. We need to know the answer. We're not actually going to talk about that today either. Does God bless spiritual Israel or political slash physical Israel? One or the other or neither or both? That's an important question to answer. Are they the same thing as spiritual Israel and physical, political Israel? Are they the same thing? you don't know, if we don't know the answers to those questions, we could be blessing something that God is cursing or cursing something that God is blessing. We 
need to know the difference. And does spiritual Israel need land? Does God bless spiritual Israel or political slash physical Israel? And if he does, does spiritual Israel need land? I don't know. Good questions. We're not actually going to answer any of those this morning. Uh, <laughs> but we will talk about some things. We will talk about next Sunday, unless the Lord changes the plans on me. We will talk about what is spiritual Israel. What is spiritual Israel? We need to understand these, th these things or we can find ourselves supporting something that God's not doing. We can actually find ourselves supporting something that the devil is doing. And unfortunately, the Pharisees found themselves in that very situation with Jesus. Uh, calling things evil that were good and calling things good that were evil. And we don't want to participate in that. Some horrific reports have come out of this conflict. One of the reports that came out um, was that Hezbollah or um, it, that they... Sorry? Hamas, yeah, I'm sorry, not Hezbollah. Hamas went in and beheaded some Israeli babies. And that is horrific and terrible, and Hamas should be denounced for that, right? 100%. I hope you're not confused about that. 100%. Here's a question. Almost every abortion in Israel that's requested is approved and paid for by the government. So the, we've been saying burn, or the Israelites at least, Israel, burn Palestine to the ground for chopping up our babies, but let us do it to our own babies when we want. Neither of them are righteous. Neither of them are holy. Neither of them are good. Does God support any chopping up of babies? No. So is God for Israel or against? It's a complicated question, isn't it? Because abortion is legal in the nation of Israel. It's legal. Is God for that or against that? He got very angry at Israel for sacrificing babies to Baal and Ashtoreth and all these things. So is God for Israel or not? It's a black and white question that there is no answer. Both. He's for them and he's against them at the same time. Right? These are not black and white questions. Well, it turns out that the reporter who reported that, that they came in and beheaded babies said, I'm sorry, I actually don't have any proof. I need to recant that. I need to pull that back. It didn't actually happen. Does that mean that, that they're doing uh, amazing things? Palestine, no. But does that mean Israel is doing amazing things? No. Who should we be for? Who should we be against? It's a Jesus. Yeah. All right. Joshua asked the same question of the angel of the Lord that showed up at Jericho. And he's like, are you like, I see you're mighty. Are you here for us? Are you here for them? What did the angel of the Lord say? Neither. I'm the commander of the Lord of hosts. Neither. Uh, you two are going to have to get on my agenda. Now, I end up, he destroyed Jericho. But he's like, I'm not for either of you. I'm for myself and my own agenda, and you get on board my agenda. So that's what we have to figure out. What is God's agenda? And who should we be for? Who should we be against? We need to figure out the answers to these questions. 
So my heart today is not to convince you to be pro or anti-Israel or pro or anti-Palestine. I just want to give some nuance to some of these things. It's actually to get us all to be wise in our response to this situation and to have a righteous, pure-hearted judgment about it. Okay? Because there's people on both sides that are like, Palestine, Israel. Like, they're both doing bad things. And there's innocent people on both sides. This is a terrible, terrible thing. Israel became the first country in Asia and one of the first countries in the world to recognize unregistered cohabitation between same-sex couples, making it the first country in Asia to recognize same-sex unions in any capacity. Their law says that homosexuals are to be stoned to death, and they're one of the first nations in the world to actually legalize it. Now, you can't get married as a homosexual couple in Israel, but it's allowed and they recognize homosexual marriages from any other place in the world. It's one of the most pro-homosexual nations on earth. And I just had someone say, have you ever looked at a map of all the, the uh, registered pedophiles in the world and the location and how many are in Israel? It was shocking. Well, why is that? We talked about it probably, it's been a year and a half now, but most Jews are Talmudic Jews. They follow the Talmud, not the Torah, not the Old Testament. And in the Talmud, it, it says that as long as a girl is three years and one day old, you can have sex with her. And as long as a priest, uh, you know, molests a boy before he's nine years old, it doesn't count because he's not sexually mature. That's in the Talmud. So, does that mean everyone in Israel's bad? No. Does that mean Israel's bad? No. Does that mean we need to support everything they do? No. So is God for or against political Israel? Both. <laughs> right? Both. He's for them and against them at the same time, just like he is America. Just like he is every other nation on planet Earth. I encourage you to do some research on uh, the founding of Israel, especially in the late 1800s, and the involvement of the Rothschilds, the DuPonts, and the Rockefellers, and some of the letters that they sent to each other uh, regarding why they want to bring the Jews back to Palestine. And they even said in their letters that they needed something bad to happen to the Jews so that the world would be sympathetic to their cause of Zionism. So the, this brings a lot of confusions to Christians. Should we be Zionists or should we not? Did God move them back to the land of Palestine or was it not God? Or even if it was God, they have a prime minister and a cabinet and they're making political decisions and they have laws on their books that are against the Torah. So is God for them or against them? These are not easy questions to answer. We're going to look at some things. I have an opinion, but it's just my opinion. But I don't know. 
for sure if I'm right or wrong. But for those of you that have a very strong opinion one way or another, I hope that we can all come to a place of humility. We can all come to a place where we're challenged with some of these things. Um, God was almost never 100% pro-Israel, even in the Old Testament. Just look at Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and curses chapters. If you do these things, I'll bless you. If you do these things, I'm going to destroy you and curse you. So was God for or against Israel? He was for them, but sometimes he was against them. Right? He loved them. He wanted, the, he wanted righteousness out of them. So when they weren't behaving righteously, was God for them or, or unconditionally for them or unconditionally against them? Some of us are actually more pro-Israel than God himself is. Because we just say whatever Israel does, they can do it. Because it's God. But is that true? You have to come to your own conclusion. You have to come to your own conclusion. I don't believe it's true. They're a nation just like us that does good and bad things with innocent and guilty people, with good and evil people, with evil agendas and good agendas. They're a nation just like us. So we can't, in my opinion, give them a blank check to do whatever they want. All right, we have three choices, in my opinion. It's one, if Israel becoming a nation again is from God, we have to wholeheartedly support everything they do. Or two, if Israel becoming a nation is not from God, but from man, then they should not be supported no matter what they do. Or three, whether it's from God or not, we should treat them like we treat any other nation. We should pray for their people to come to repentance and a saving relationship with Jesus. We should pray that their leaders make godly decisions not ungodly ones. Here's a challenge. The Lord challenged me with this. So I'll just share the wealth. He said, why do you call a fast when Israel is attacked, but you don't care when Yemen is attacked? When other nations go to war, we don't call fasts and things. Why? Well, it's because we have some sort of Mindset or theological belief, something that they are more special and should be able to get away with more things than any other nation on earth does. So this is what I'm challenging this morning. And I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I'm just saying, is that true? Is that true? Again, we don't want to support something that the devil's up to, but we also don't want to curse something that God is up to. Amen? Okay, so I'm going to give you some scriptures um, that have challenged me, that have caused me to question. And more than anything, I hope this just causes you to dig in and allow some of your end-time beliefs to at least be challenged. Because my, I don't have it figured out. I really don't. I'll go for, oh, yeah, I got it figured out. Oh, no, I don't. Oh, okay, no, I don't. I have no idea. Guess what? N neither does anybody else. Because none of the end time uh, theological uh, doctrines that people come up with that we give names to, none of them fit perfectly. And I think that's by God's design. Or we'll be trusting in that instead of the Lord. And God can change his mind. He can change his mind. Okay, so um, 
it, it, it honestly, I'm just going to give you my opinion to this. I've never understood uh, why God would want to build a third temple in Israel. I just, I've never understood it. Even from the time I got saved, very early on, I thought, wow, why, why would God want that animal sacrifices again and a building again and the priests again and all this stuff again for what? So that he could come back and say, hey, uh, I already told you this isn't what I wanted. I already told you to trust in me. I'm your Messiah. Like, he already said it. He already did it. It, ju it just never made sense to me. But I understand why people believe it. Because there's one or two scriptures that the way we interpret them it makes it feel like that has to happen. But that's our interpretation of literally one or two scriptures. One or two. So I've read all the viewpoints and all the rest, and I can't figure it out. I can't. I'll just be honest. Um, I think I've figured out a lot of it, but that's my opinion, and I'm, I'm wrong. We're all going to be wrong about this. Um, so here's some scriptures for you that I just want you to think about. Okay, uh, Jeremiah 3.15. I don't have anything on the board for you. Some of these are going to be a little bit longer. Um, in Jeremiah 3, man, go home, read Jeremiah chapter 3, get some context of this. It's so important. But Jeremiah 3, 15 to 18 says this. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. They shall say no more. The ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. A lot of people are like, they got to rebuild all the utensils that are being used in the third temple. And a lot of people said they've already rebuilt everything. But God's saying here, uh, no, actually, the Ark of the Covenant's not even going to be missed. It's not going to be longed for. You're not going to really care that much, and it's never going to be made again. Well, some people will go, well, that's okay, because they're going to find the old one, so they won't make a new one. Okay, maybe. But still, you won't miss it. You won't long for it. You won't say, the Ark of the Lord. What would have to happen? That God's presence is there, but the ark is not, because the presence rests on the ark. For third temple restoration people, this is, this is a bit of a conundrum. I couldn't figure it out. So let's move on, because this is like one point for Stacy, right? But I'm going to lose it in a second. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north and to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Ah, point from Stacy taken away. Because this says God's going to bring them back to their land. So what is going on? What is going on? The Ark of the Covenant was where God's presence sat. 
So I asked the question a second ago, how is it that God's presence is in Jerusalem, but the Ark of the Covenant is not there? And nobody cares that it's not there. How does that happen? How does that happen? Oh, the, the presence of God won't be associated with the ark anymore. Right? You think Peter and John and the Apostle Paul in their day were like, man, everything Jesus did for us was amazing, but if only we had the ark of the covenant. <laughs> Do you think they were like saying that? Right? Did you know in Jesus' time, the Ark of the Covenant hadn't been in the temple for 400 years? The Holy of Holies was empty in Jesus' day. It was empty. It wasn't there. So when they go to put the blood on the Day of Atonement on, on the mercy seat, what are they sprinkling? There's nothing there. The ground. So where is the presence of God now? Over the Ark of the Covenant or over Jesus? It's over Jesus. So this scripture is actually saying in that day, God's presence will be in Jerusalem and it won't be associated with the Ark of the Covenant and you won't care that the Ark isn't there. You'll totally forget about it. It won't matter because something better is going to happen. That's Jesus. He is the presence of God. Where is the mercy seat? We actually sang about it. Jesus, seated on the mercy seat in heaven. He's seated on the heavenly mercy seat. He is the presence. He is the mercy. It's Jesus. So not the Ark of the Covenant. So if you believe that the third temple has to be rebuilt, well, there needs to be an ark. And obviously they can't rebuild it, so they have to find it. But then again, God's saying, this isn't what I wanted. You're going backwards. Right? All right it's just stuff I read and I go, oh, wow, that messes that theology up and that messes that theology up. And well, how does that work and how does this work? A day is coming when God's presence will be in your midst, but the ark won't. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. So the question is, well, the verse also says that God will bring his people from afar. Well, first of all, it's Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah prophesied they would be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, and then they got brought back. So they did get brought back to their promised land. But how many times do we fulfill that same scripture? I don't know. Um, don't know. But the question is, okay, is that a literal fulfillment? Literally, are they bringing uh, the nation's Israel back around the presence of God, around Jesus? Or is this maybe more of a figurative thing? Well, we got to decide this. Check out this verse in Zechariah 14. This is 6 down to, down to um, well, 6 to 16. Poetic, it'll go quick. Zechariah 14, chapter 6. On that day, there shall be, so 
There's a special day known to the Lord, he says. Okay, context. On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. Hmm, we've heard that before. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the tower of the former gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. It shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So, a couple questions. Is this literal or figurative? We, we have to ask that question of most every Bible prophecy. And we tend to take things that were meant to be figurative, make them literal, and take things that were meant to be literal and make them figurative. So, there's another scripture that says Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will split in two, and a river will go east to the Dead Sea, and then another one will go west to the Mediterranean Sea. But then in Ezekiel, it says that the river of God, the river of life, will flow from the temple and go down to the Dead Sea. So you have a river on a mountain going this way and that way. This says there's two rivers. Ezekiel's river goes from the temple and has to cross over the river that's going from Mount of Olives to the west. So we have all these rivers going all over the place, and it's a river of living water. Is it literal or figurative? If it's literal, I don't know how the Lord's going to do it. I, I have no clue. There's like crossing rivers. One's coming from the temple, one's coming from the mountain. Also, if this is literal and the nations surround Jerusalem, then they have to wage war with camels and donkeys and mules. Not tanks, not missiles. Camels, donkeys, and mules. Because the Lord says whatever camels, donkeys, and mules are in the camp fighting against Jerusalem, I'm going to wipe them out. So is it figurative or literal? Well, it's not super easy. Let's keep going. Uh, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Did you hear that? Everyone on the whole earth that is left will have to come to Jerusalem every single year around September and celebrate the Feast of Booths. And then he talks about the curse for those that don't. Verse 17. 
And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. Is this figurative or literal? You ever seen pictures of Mecca and how often they have people getting trampled to death? Not even 1% of the, of the Muslim population of the earth can go to Mecca without people being trampled to death. But here this verse says, every human being will go to Jerusalem every feast of booths. Can you imagine the size of that airport? How are we all going to fit? If this is literal, right? If this is literal, this would be a fantastic time to go invest in a porta potty company because 7 billion people will need toilets every single year in Jerusalem. <laughs> right? I mean, seriously. I know, it, you know, it's a bit facetious, but. There's things we don't think about. We just go, oh yeah, that's literal, well that's not. And we make, we just pick and choose and decide. But then impossibilities arise and we go, ah, God's just gonna, he's just gonna figure it out. He's just gonna figure it out. And we believe in outlandish things sometimes um, when we can't even believe God for small things. But we'll believe him for crazy impossible things, right? We should believe God for impossible things, but so, if this is literal, every single person on planet Earth is going to be in Jerusalem every single September. My opinion, that would be amazing, but my opinion is that's probably figurative. That probably isn't going to happen. Whatever nation doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus and submit to his ways, they're already under a curse, right? Right? The ones who believe, are they're blessed. Our nation, when we've walked in righteousness, have been blessed. When we walk in unrighteousness, we get cursed. It's already happened. It's already true. What is the Feast of Booths about? Why isn't it Passover? Why doesn't everyone have to come to Passover? Why doesn't everyone have to come to the Feast of Pentecost? Why just booths? That's a good question. I mean, Passover has more to do with salvation than the Feast of Booths, right? So why the Feast of Booths and not Passover? No, I don't know. Because the Feast of Booths is about God tabernacling with his people. So if you don't believe that God has tabernacled with you, you're not surrendered and submitted to him. You're not obeying him. You're under a curse and not a blessing. This has already actually come to pass. And people celebrate Jesus tabernacling with us in every nation on earth every single Sunday at least. We already celebrate that. We already do. We got to figure out if some of this stuff is, is figurative or literal. 
Genesis 15, 17. This is something that I've, I mean, it's been a bit of a conundrum, but I guess I've asked some people like, okay, well, if what you're saying is true, can you answer this question for me? And they can't. Uh, Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. And this is Abraham sacrificing to the Lord. And Abraham's making a covenant. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Listen. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So what is the geographical promised land? It goes from Iraq, the river Euphrates, all the way down to the Nile River. So if you really truly believe that God has given the promised land to Israel forever, then you have to be in support of Israel taking over Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, parts of Turkey, and Egypt. You have to be in support of that. Well, no, we, he can, a little piece is good enough. Well, how big is good enough? Is it the promised land if it's just a little piece? Not really. Their land, the, the ge geographical nation of Israel was that big under the rule of David and Solomon. And after that, it was that big. And ever since then, that was the pinnacle, the height of their kingdom, and then it shrunk back down. So the question is, if that is the geographical description of the promised land, but you don't believe that Israel should invade Jordan and Lebanon and Egypt and all these things, then show me the scripture, Syria, show me the scripture for it's okay for them to just have a little peace. There isn't one. We don't know. We don't know. These are challenging questions. If you believe that the promised land is a physical, geographical place and God has given it back to the Jews, you've got to support that. But you've also got to figure out, is that really what the Lord wants? Because if they say, we're going to war with Syria, we're going to take it over. And you have to, have to go, amen, hallelujah, it's happening. We're taking over Iraq, amen, hallelujah, it's happening. Is that really what the Lord wants or not? Good question. Turn to Leviticus chapter 14. Here's a couple. Here's a scripture. Um, I'll end with this. I have another scripture, but I'm going to end with this. This is something, just so you know, you might think, oh, Stacy, you're crazy. I've never heard this from anybody else ever. This is something I feel like the Lord has shown me in the word of God. And it's something that has challenged me from uh, very early on being a believer and I have a hard time getting around it Leviticus 14 33 the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying when you come into the land of Canaan which I give you for a possession and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession 
then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest. There seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And afterward the priest shall go in to see the house, and he shall examine the disease. And if the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. If the disease is spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which is the disease and throw them into an unclean place outside the city. So what do they have to do to a house that is unclean like this? They... Yeah, they shut it down for seven days and it just doesn't go away. Then they have to take it apart stone by stone and rebuild it, right? Okay, let's keep going. Uh, where did we leave off? Verse 41. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around, and the plaster that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take other plaster and plaster the house. So you tear it down to the foundation, and then you build it again, right? With new stones and new plaster, new everything. Verse 43, if the disease breaks out again in the house after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, in the brand new house that was built with new bricks, new stones, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean, and he shall break down the house, its stones and timber, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place, and everyone that goes in there will be unclean. How many temples were there? God had a problem with Israel And he said I'm tearing down your house And I'm deporting you to Babylon For how many years? Seventy years huh, A week of years Interesting Then they come back under Ezra Under Nehemiah They rebuild the temple The foundation was still there right? They repaired the foundation They rebuilt the temple and then Jesus, the high priest, comes in. How many times does he cleanse the house in his ministry? The book of John puts it at the very beginning of his ministry. It's in John chapter 2 or 3, I believe. But everyone else puts it on the very last week. In fact, the day of the triumphal entry, four days before he goes to the cross. So John puts it at the very beginning of his ministry. All the rest of them put it at the very end of his ministry. We don't know, but I think more than likely he probably cleansed it when he, on the first Passover, he was in Jerusalem, and then he cleansed it again on the last Passover, he was in Jerusalem. He went and inspected the house. And what did Jesus say? Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So how many times did the temple get destroyed? How many times did the house, when Jesus said, your house is left, left desolate to you? Twice. What does that imply? What does that language imply? For those that understand, that have read the Old Testament, that understand this about a leprous house, Jesus says, your house will be left to you desolate and not one stone will be left on top of the other. What was he saying? This is a persistent leprosy and this house can never be built again. At least that's what I saying to me. At least that's how I understand it. We don't see a lot of these things because we don't read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the boring law parts of the Bible. But we should. They're very prophetic. They're very, very prophetic. I don't know how we get around that one. I just don't. So what we will talk about next week is what is spiritual Israel? What is spiritual Israel? Again, I am not anti-Israel. I have Jewish friends. There are godly, amazing people. But there are some evil people as well that call themselves Jews. There are evil people from Palestine. And there's really good people from Palestine. We don't want anyone to die. What I don't want for us, actually what I don't want for any Christian, is because we have some sort of theology that we just start waving the Israel flag and saying, destroy those evil Palestinians. Or waving the Palestinian flag, destroy those evil Israelites. We should be anti-war, we should be pro-people. Sadly, there are innocent people dying on both sides of this. And more than likely, it's the powers that be that manipulate to make it happen over money or some sort of political agenda. Is God for that or against that? He's against that. Is God for or against Palestine? Both. Is he for or against Israel? Both. Is he for or against us? Both. He loves us all. Do you know what the average uh, age of an American is? No, the, not how long we live, like the median age of America. The median age. What do you think it is? Yeah, 39. So probably 38.8 or something. I think it's 38.8. So if you're 39 years old, congratulations. Half of America is younger than you, and half of America is older than you. You are the average age of the average American. What is the average age of, in Palestine? 18. Actually, 17 point something. So what does that mean? It means half of Palestine 
our children. Half our children. That should give us some pause to be like, yeah, go storm the gates of Palestine. Half of them are children. I'm not going to say who's innocent or guilty in this, but I will tell you this. This invasion from Hamas has all the earmarks of a false flag event. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. But Egypt told them four days before. Egypt has said, we told them. You can get anywhere to anywhere. New, uh, Israel's the size of New Jersey. You can get anywhere to anywhere in a helicopter in an hour. Anywhere, from any point in Israel to the other point of Israel in an hour in a helicopter. You know how long it took them to respond to some of these people getting massacred? Like mass massacred. Six hours. That doesn't happen just an intelligence failure. That only happens on purpose. On a high holy day. Mossad funded Hamas. They created it. They admit that they created it for political reasons decades ago. They funded it. You know what the really sad thing is? America is funding the Israelis and the Palestinians. You and me, and Iran, you and me, are giving money for innocent people to die. It's terrible. We need to pray for peace. We need to pray for peace. Should we support a country to defend itself if it's attacked? Yes, we should. Do we know for sure that this wasn't a false flag event? I don't, do you? For sure, without a shadow of a doubt? No, you don't. So what does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not going to rush to judgment like a lot of people have. I'm going to pray, oh God, have mercy. Lord, let the truth come to light. Let those who are manipulating this situation for an agenda other than human rights and human life, Lord, let it come to the surface. God, have mercy on everyone. Expose the truth, Lord. That's what we should be praying. That's what we should be praying. Most people in the world want peace. I lived in a Muslim country with radical Islamic fighters for four years. Besides the radical Islamic fighters, every Muslim I knew just wanted their kids to grow up in safety and be happy. That's what most of the world wants. We can't jump in to things blindly, ignorantly getting manipulated by media. We have to be wise about these things and righteous in our judgments. I don't know exactly what's going on over there and you don't either. If you've got Israeli flags on your Facebook, please take them down. You've got Palestinian flags on your Facebook. Well, I don't know. They actually probably seem to be more innocent besides Hamas. We've got to be careful how we respond in these situations. We've got to have mercy and think like the Lord thinks. We're going to talk some more um, next week about what is spiritual Israel. 
This is my personal belief. All the promises, I mean, this is scripture, all the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. That he is our promised land. He is our Sabbath rest. He is the river of life. We haven't replaced Israel, but it says that Jesus, the branch, grew out of the stump of Jesse. Jesus the branch grew out of the stump of Jesse. And John the Baptist said, when Jesus came, the ax is laid at the root of the tree. He's going to cut down this unfruitful tree, but it doesn't mean the end. A righteous branch has grown up out of the stump of Jesse, from the house of David. Jesus, you know what Nazareth means? The branch. Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the branch. And in our faith in Jesus, in a Jewish Messiah, we are inheritors of all the promise. That doesn't mean we replace Israel, but what that means is Israel has been chopped down as an unfruitful tree. And their branch has been broken off, as it says in, in Romans chapter 9 and 10. And 11, that whole conversation, their branch has been broken off because they weren't fruitful. But Paul says, how much more if a wild branch like us can be grafted in? How much more could God take that unfruitful branch and graft them back in? They don't get grafted back into the stump. He doesn't rebuild the stump. They get grafted back in to the fruitful branch Jesus. Jesus. So we don't need to talk about replacement theology. There's maybe some people believe it. But it's it's confusing the facts of scripture. The blessings, the promises, all the fulfillment is in the Jewish savior Jesus. And Israel, the true Israel from God, will have faith like their father Abraham. And they will come to Yeshua. There isn't any other way. There is no other name. No other way by which man can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. We have all the blessings of Abraham. All the covenant blessings. Not because we replaced Israel. But because the gospel came to us and we had faith in Yeshua. And that's exactly how any Jew will be saved or any Gentile will be saved the exact same way. Amen? Would you guys stand up with me? I'll pray for you because I imagine some of you might have been challenged. I'm challenged all the time trying to figure this stuff out. And I've come to the conclusion, I don't think I'm ever going to, and that's part of the point. But here's the reality. Whether it was God or not, Israel is over there, aren't they? The Jews are in Palestine. Israel is in Palestine. It's un an unworkable situation. And I think that's what the Rothschilds and the DuPonts and the Rockefellers, I think that's what they wanted. An endless war. But at this point, since Israel is there, it's going to take a miracle from God to sort it out. It will. 
And maybe that's the whole point. I don't know. I'm not the Lord. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises. And Lord, I ask God that this week you would help each and every one of us to dig into your word, to press into you, to pray and to ask for revelation. But Lord, most of all, we ask for your peace to come upon this land. Satan has manipulated and lied and deceived and brought destruction and innocent people are dying who don't deserve it. People are hurting. We ask for your mercy on them, Lord. Give them dreams. Give them encounters, God. Reveal yourself to them, Lord. To Muslim, to Jew, to atheist, to homosexual, whoever it is. Reveal yourself to them. Father, we ask for your peace to come over that land. We do ask, Father, that you would expose the manipulation, the lies, and the puppets that are pulling the strings to create these situations and perpetuate something that most people do not want. Lord, we ask for your miracle. Lord, we want to have pure hearts, as pure hearts as we can get in this situation. We bless your people, Lord. We bless your children. Everyone over there are your little boys and your little girls who were made in your image. And many of them don't realize how much you love them. Show them your love, Lord. Open their eyes, open their ears. Thank you, Lord. I stopped for the sake of time, but I want to encourage you highly. Keep reading that passage in Leviticus about the leprous house. Because there is a cleansing that can occur. And the ritual is incredible. If you haven't read it, I'll just give you a synopsis because I do want to end with some hope here. The priest takes two birds and he binds these birds to a piece of cedar wood and hyssop. And hyssop was used for cleansing. It's what they dip the blood uh, the blood of the lamb at the Passover and put on their doorpost. It was hyssop. So hyssop, a scarlet thread was tied around these two birds and this piece of cedar wood and this hyssop. And then over clean water, one of the birds was killed over the water. Then the live bird was taken and dipped into the blood of the dead bird. It was tied to the piece of wood with the scarlet thread and the hyssop. And that dead bird, the live bird, took the blood of the dead bird and sprinkled it. Using the live bird, sprinkled the blood of the dead bird over the house. And then the house 
would be made clean. And then the bird was set free to take that blood and drip it everywhere that it flew. It's a prophetic picture. Everywhere there's a fish or a bird, it speaks of a spirit because they have wings and they fly through an atmosphere of water or air. So two spirits, one that dies on a piece of wood and one that is alive, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he will take what is mine and give it to you. In this ritual of cleansing the leprous house, you take the live bird in the blood of the bird that died, and that blood gets sprinkled by that live bird. It's the Holy Spirit imparting to us all the benefits of the blood of Jesus. And that bird is set free to take that blood anywhere it wants to fly to. Incredible prophetic picture of what has happened for us. So how is leprosy cured? You have the blood of Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit to apply the blood of Jesus to your heart. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to me. I love you all so much. Um, may we have wisdom and revelation in this hour. Amen? All right. You go be obedient to the bird. And fly wherever he wants you to fly and put the blood of Jesus wherever he wants you to put that blood. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. If you have kids in the back, if you wouldn't.